My name is Lou Dundon. I'm a co-chair of the BBA Environmental Law Section's COVID-19 subcommittee, and we're very excited to bring you this extremely timely panel today and to hear from our excellent speakers who I'll introduce to you right now. Our first speaker is Andrea Namache. She's been an organizer for the last six years and has been involved at UMass with the Fossil Fuel Divestment Campaign and the Center for Education, Policy, and Advocacy. And she's currently the co-executive director of Neighbor to Neighbor, which advocates for environmental justice, among other issues. Our second speaker is Maria Belen Power, who has over 15 years of experience as an organizer with undocumented immigrants, day laborers, and public housing tenants. She currently oversees the environmental justice campaigns at Green Roots and represents Green Roots and the Green Justice Coalition of the Greater Boston Area, as well as national movements for environment and climate justice. She also serves on the board of directors for the student immigrant movement. Our third speaker is Dr. Frank Robinson, the Vice President of Public Health and Community Relations for Bay State Health, where he's worked for 25 years. Dr. Robinson leads Bay State's efforts to expand the definition of health and to include the creation of healthier communities across the spectrum of diversity, including promoting economic opportunity, education, nutritious food, and safe neighborhoods by building community partnerships to help achieve large-scale health improvements. Dr. Robinson is also the Executive Director of Partners for Healthier Community and has served as an adjunct faculty at UMass Amherst, Springfield College, Western New England College, and Westfield State College. And our last speaker, David Wittenberg, is an Assistant Attorney General in the Attorney General's Office's uh, Energy and Environment Bureau. This spring, he co-authored A.G. Healy's issue brief, COVID-19's Unequal Effects in Massachusetts, Remedying the Legal and Environmental Injustice and Building Climate Resilience. At the AGO, David works on criminal and civil enforcement environmental laws, and he also serves on the board of the Jewish Alliance for Law and Social Action. I wanna thank all of you guys so much for being on this panel. I really appreciate it. And I will now turn it over to Andrea to get started today. Thank you. We could share the slides. Awesome. Great. Thanks for the introduction, everyone. Um, well, to Lou. Again, I'm Andrea Namitja, co-executive director of Neighbor to Neighbor. Um, thanks to the BBA for having me on this panel. Um, so I'm just going to share a little bit about Neighbor to Neighbor, the communities in which we organize, um, the major issues in our communities, what we've done around um, environmental justice, and then lastly, what still needs to be done around environmental justice and health equity statewide. Um, next slide, please. So who is neighbor to neighbor? What do we do and how do we do it? Next slide. So neighbor to neighbor um, has had a long history. In the 1980s, there was a lot of organizing around ending the Civil War in El Salvador. And then in the 90s, we became a national organization working on Medicare for all. And finally, we got our official um, start here in Massachusetts in 1996. Um, so we are a grassroots, multi-issue people's organization. Um, so what does that mean? For starters, um, grassroots organization means that we organize people around the issues that affect their daily lives um, and to build power in the people who have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised um, in, in various communities in Massachusetts to transform the institutions that govern their lives. And so we organize the new majority, people of color, low income, people, working class people, immigrants, women, and LGBTQ folks in our four gateway cities here in Mass, Lynn, Worcester, Springfield, and Holyoke. Um, secondly, we organize people through broad outreach. So we go door-to-door -door canvassing, um, we do phone banking, we table, and we do community events. And we do this broad outreach from February all the way until mid-November. So it's a really long season where we are literally knocking on doors and having one-on-ones with community residents. 
Um, and then secondly, we have our deep organizing in which we are bringing people into the organization, um, leading them through leadership development, political education, having our members running the local campaigns in the cities. And so just for one example, last August, we brought uh, 25 board staff and community residents to meet with Gopal Dayaneni of Movement Generation um, to learn about just transition and how climate and public health are affecting our lives. And so secondly, we are multi-issue. So meaning we do not just organize around environmental and climate issues. Um, as a people of color led, working class led organization, we realize that we don't lead single issue lives. Um, so I hold many identities as a black person, a woman, an, an immigrant, a working class person. And I know that the system impacts me in all of those myriad ways. Um, so being multi-issue really allows us to have an intersectional movement where we are understanding um, the intersections between environment, housing, police brutality, economic justice, um, and so much more. And then lastly, Neighbor to Neighbor is both a 501c3 and a 501c4. Um, so we do have our education advocacy arm, which holds a lot of our state, local and statewide campaigns. Um, but then we also have this electoral arm, which allows us to run our members for elected office, both locally and statewide. Uh, next slide, please. So our communities. Um, so just want to give you all a sense of the four communities in which we organize and what we've done um, in the So the first is Lynn. Lynn is the, the ninth largest city in Massachusetts with over 90,000 residents. Um, it's home to many immigrant families, um, mostly hailing from the Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Haiti, Cambodia, and others. And so some of the past environmental issues that have happened in Lynn is the dumping in the Saugus River. Um, Lynn is also coastal, so it gets frequent flooding due to any storms that are exacerbated by climate change. And lastly, Lynn is very close to the Saugus incinerator as well. And so back in 2018, we tested a series of environmental justice questions. Um, it was a really small pilot study. But what we gleaned from the community in Lynn um, are those intersections that I, I said before. So people in Lynn are having to deal with uh, picking between feeding their families, paying their utility bill, or paying their rising rents. Um, and then there was a huge public health issue that we learned of people's homes getting flooded due to these frequent storms um, and then having mold in people's homes. Um, and so we did an environmental justice tour back in 2018 to really talk about the intersections specifically between housing and environmental justice, um, and just to bring community awareness around those two issues. Um, next slide, please. So this is just a quote from a survey respondent in Lynn who said, rent is too high and does not allow us to have money for our dreams. Next slide, please. So second, uh, Worcester is another city in which we organized um, we reopened our Worcester chapter in, chapter in February of 2019. And so it's the second largest city in Massachusetts and New England after Boston with 181 residents. So it's a really huge city. Um, it's about 40% people of color, 21% immigrant. And, um, you know, in any city, um, the huge climate impacts are the heat island effect and people's abilities to really cool down in summer months. Um, and so COVID-19 has also impacted Worcester um, and we have been engaging a lot in mutual aid work of delivering food, masks, census pamphlets, which is really important to ensure that everybody gets count counted in this in these 2020 census. 
Um, and so we've been working with a lot of organizational partners um, to specifically bring all of these resources to immigrant communities, which have not been recipients from any of the stimulus packages federally. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, we've been moving a lot of work around 2020 census and really doing political education on why it's important to be counted, especially with so many rollbacks federally. Um, and so we've been leading the state with census calls, making over 30,000 since June. Um, next slide, please. So moving on to our two cities in Western Mass. So first is Springfield, uh, third largest city here in Massachusetts, fourth in New England with 153 residents. Um, and Springfield is majority people of color community, huge Latinx community as well. And so Springfield has been designated an EJ community both fe federally and here in Massachusetts. Um, and so we've done a lot of organizing with other coalition partners um, in the city of Springfield around the Herena School. Many of you probably have heard about this school, but it is a school that is situated right next to I-91, major highway um, in Springfield. And there is a tunnel that students are supposed to use to pass through to attend school. And so this tunnel has been repeatedly flooded, causing a lot of mold. And so I won't go super deeply into Hirena because I know that Dr. Robinson is going to touch a little bit on the Hirena school, but um, this issue has really impassioned many folks in Springfield, especially with the public health um, impacts that the city holds. Um, so Springfield is ranked number one in the nation as the worst place to live in as to live with asthma. So just having children walking through a moldy tunnel, um, I-91 right nearby, um, it's been a huge issue that we've kept our, kept our eyes on over the years. Next slide, please. And so just a quote from our Springfield chapter organizer who said, congestion, who also has asthma, um, who said congestion is getting bad in Springfield. If we invest in our public infrastructure, less cars will be on the road and I can breathe easier, literally. Um, next slide, please. And our last community is Holyoke. Um, so Holyoke is our smallest of our four chapters with roughly 39,000 residents, um, but with a really strong history of organizing around environmental justice issues. So back in 2014, Neighbor to Neighbor, alongside other organizational allies, um, won our campaign to close the Mount Tom coal plant um, that was located in the city. And so for starters, this coal plant had been operating for over 50 years. Um, and it was polluting a lot of the waterways and the farmlands that were nearby. And so in 2011, um, the plant had racked up 2,500 federal clear, Clean Air Act violations. Um, and yet there was still nothing done um, to shut down the plant, despite a lot of the cumulative environmental and public health impacts in the city. And so we organized over the years to get the plant shut down. Um, so we used what we are known for as neighbor to neighbor. We literally went neighbor to neighbor and door knocked, talked to residents. Um, we commissioned a study to assess what could be done of the, of the former uh, coal site. Um, and then we also acknowledged a lot of the labor concerns, knowing that we were shutting down a plant that people worked at. Um, so we worked really hard to ensure a just transition for the coal plant workers by um, ensuring that they're receiving severance packages, healthcare, job retraining opportunities, um, retirement assistance, um, so that we were actually leading folks into a just transition. And so we successfully shut down that plant and turn it into a solar farm um, that will be powering a thousand homes in Holyoke. 
And then now continuing on that history um, around environmental justice work, we have two projects underway in Holyoke. Um, so the first is we're hoping to work on a holistic, remembering that we are trying to de-silo the environmental movement and just the broader um, movements altogether. Um, so we're working on a holistic climate action plan to think through what it would look like for Holyoke to transition off of fossil fuels and what community residents want to see in their city. Um, and then secondly, we are working on building out a climate resiliency hub in the south side of Holyoke. Um, so that entails a lot of collective urban farming and food access, which have become huge issues in Holyoke with COVID-19, um, where people do not have access to fresh food. Um, so a huge urban farming aspect is, is um, a part of that uh, resiliency hub. Um, next slide. So I just wanted to touch really briefly on the importance of environmental justice. Um, and I, I know that environmental justice is also in one of the, uh, as one of the recommendations in the AG's brief on COVID-19 and EJ. Um, so I'm just gonna touch really, really quickly on the importance of EJ. Um, next slide, please. So for us, EJ really means um, having the ability for folks to make decisions and be a part of decision-making processes. Um, that have to do with their environment and health and all the other issues um, that communities have to face. And really without EJ, it's just a, another consistent um, exclusion of people of color, um, black and brown communities, indigenous communities from actually being at the table with, these, with decision-making processes of assessing like, you know, should this plant be cited in Springfield that already has uh, the worst asthma in the nation, et cetera. So for us, it just really means uh, that we need to be at the table and that we need to be a part of the decision-making processes that are affecting our, our lives. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so really without EJ protections, um, I think that we just continue to see everything that I highlighted from, from just that small sample of our chapters um, the public health impacts, the flooding impacts, um, the climate change and environmental impacts. And so we have been working really closely with many coalition partners and Maria Belen, who's also on this panel, um, to pass an environmental justice bill, which would really provide residents a stronger voice in the projects that are going to impact their community. So again, that decision-making um, process that I talked about. It would require agencies to use cumulative impact data and take a much harder look at um, where facilities are being placed. Um, and lastly, it's really one step. It's really the baseline um, of overcoming some of the racist and exclusionary policies around um, who gets the brunt of the pollution um, and really increasing public access to resources in the green economy. Um, so I will end there. Next slide, please. Um, so thank you all again for um, having neighbor to neighbor here on this panel um, and really excited to see um, and hear any questions that folks might have. So I think I'll pass it back to Lou. I think, um, I think Maria Belen is up next. Um, are you all set over there, Maria? Belen? I am. If, if we could share the slides again, that'd be great. Can you, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, okay, sorry. 
Um, so uh, thank you, Lou, and thank you uh, to the BBA for hosting this. Um, you may not know me, uh, but I know that we're connected through a river and a community that I call home. Um, road salt, home heating fuel, fresh produce. If you've ever wondered where those come from, well, at one point they were stored on the banks of the Chelsea Creek and across our communities. Next slide, please. Yep, so Chelsea, and you can hit next, please. And East Boston. So those are the communities that we organize and that we work in. Chelsea is the smallest and second most densely populated city in the Commonwealth. At just 1.8 square miles, we have over 45,000 residents and 73% identify as a racial or ethnic minority with over 60 identifying as Latino and Latina, like myself, who came here from Nicaragua. 24% live below the poverty level. And in neighboring East Boston, there are over 55,000 residents that live in five square miles, although three of those are occupied by Logan International Airport. And if you hit next, the airport will be highlighted. There you go. So 53% identify as Latino, and 17% live below the poverty level. Next, please. Green Roots is a resident-led environmental justice organization, and we're working to engage the most vulnerable populations, to empower them so that together we can implement innovative projects and campaigns to improve our public health and our quality of life. Next slide, please. Our communities are providing some of the largest regional benefits while shouldering the burden for air, land, water, and noise pollution from these very same industrial activities. Next, please. 100% of the jet fuel that's used at Logan International Airport is stored on the banks of the Chelsea Creek. 70 to 80% of the region's home heating fuel is also stored on the banks of the Chelsea Creek. Next, please. 400,000 tons of road salt that are used in over 350 communities in the Northeast are also stored on the banks of the Chelsea Creek. Next, please. Chelsea is also home to one of the largest produce distribution centers in the entire country, serving the Northeast the Mid-Atlantic States and Southern Canadian provinces. And the Produce Center brings in thousands of trucks in and out daily. Next, please. So Massachusetts, despite its progressive reputation, when it comes to public health, has some of the most profound race and class disparities. In 2016, the Center for Effective Government graded Massachusetts and only one other state and F for exposing people of color and residents living below the poverty level to hazardous facilities. Our communities have some of the highest rates of strokes, cardiovascular disease, and asthma hospitalization in the state. Now we could sit back and allow these disparities to happen, or we can organize to create change. And we've chosen the latter and have had some pretty amazing victories. Next slide, please. In 2000, 2006, we learned that Chelsea's, Chelsea's diesel exhaust level 
exceeded the EPA's threshold by 20%, and that our expected cancer cases caused by air pollution was 500 times higher than the rest of the state. Together with the New England Produce Center, we applied for $3 million to retrofit or replace 132 dirty diesel engines. And by doing so, we eliminated 2,000 tons of air pollutants annually. We improved our public health and we reduced our healthcare cost. Next slide, please. Now, I, if I could see all the participants here, I would ask you how many of you have heard of Cape Wind? And I think many of you would raise your hand. Now, the very same proponent that was planning clean air and clean energy for Nantucket was proposing a dirty diesel power plant along the banks of the Chelsea Creek and across our only elementary school complex. When Green, when green Roots got wind of that proposal, we immediately notified the community. We used every single tactic in the organizer's playbook. We mobilized, we wrote letters, we testified, we negotiated, and we even protested. And eventually we were successful in defeating that proposal. Next slide. And now children like my own, Maya who is six, and Ana Victoria who's three, can play in this very same playground without breathing in the fumes from a dirty diesel power plant. Next slide, please. Right now, we're engaged in a very similar struggle. Eversource is proposing to build an electrical substation on the banks of the Chelsea Creek in a dense neighborhood of East Boston, a neighborhood primarily low income and primarily composed of people of color. If built, the substation would be located on a parcel of land that is next to a very heavily utilized playground and next to 8 million gallons of jet fuel. This type of infrastructure is the opposite of what we should be building in our communities and building for resiliency. Next, please. This is what could happen if something goes wrong. And so we will do what we do best. We will use every single tactic in the organizer's playbook to fight back against this proposal that would be a ticking time bomb for our community. Next slide, please. Now COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted low-income communities and communities of color across the country. In Massachusetts, Chelsea has been hit the hardest. We have had the highest rate of infection. And in fact, it's over five times the state average. We know that this is in large part due to environmental burdens and social determinants of health, such as housing, transit, food insecurity, and others. Now, while our community has been hit the hardest, our city and community partners have responded in unprecedented ways. And we will continue to work together to address public health and the economic consequences of the pandemic while also addressing the root causes of environmental injustice and environmental racism. And in that sense, we are also advocating and working very hard every day to pass environmental justice legislation alongside our 
our partners out neighbor to neighbor, and many others of the Massachusetts Environmental Justice Legislative Table. And with that, I will close. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Robinson, you're next, I believe, right? Yes, I am. Thank you. Great. Well, listen, good, um, good evening. Uh, good evening. Let me, get, let me get straight. Good afternoon. <laughs> I just got off the road from a long, uh, beautiful uh, weekend on the Cape, and I haven't gotten reoriented yet. So let me jump right into my presentation. Um, it's going to uh, uh, touch on uh, elements that have made uh, that have been made by the previous speakers. The um, uh, the you you've gotten a bit of an introduction from Andrea around environmental justice neighborhoods. So I want to use this presentation to sort of uh, to begin my my talking points. And so this is a uh, map of Springfield. And if you take a look at how the EJ populations or EJ neighborhoods are defined. Um, they tend to be defined in terms of uh, percentage of low income. Uh, again, if you look at Springfield, you saw some of the data was substantially above regional and state averages. Uh, those uh, hash mark communities, those uh, uh, are communities of low income, the uh, sort of the uh, tan or the uh, flesh colored communities are communities with a concentration of black indigenous and people of color. Those populations are live in hyper, what I would call hyper segregated neighborhoods. Uh, those neighborhoods are uh, uh, great, equal to or greater than 25% of the population. Uh, and then uh, within those same neighborhoods, uh, there are large uh, immigrant uh, non-English speaking populations. So in the EJ parlance, these are vulnerable populations, so-called. Um, the um, those same neighborhoods are uh, tend to be the uh, uh, sites of uh, brownfields. Um, they tend to be the sites of old um, housing uh, where there's substantial uh, deteriorated housing. Uh, they uh, tend to be uh, densely populated uh, sites. And I'm going to come back to that with uh, uh, some uh, other. Uh, maps that actually speak to a set of criteria that we're using to address uh, COVID that I think uh, are tools that could be applied to environmental justice issues in general. So uh, as the uh, um, uh, speakers have presented uh, earlier, Springfield has a uh, major challenge with respect to uh, asthma and, and other uh, respiratory conditions. Um, you know, Latino population, uh, black population tends to have asthma rates uh, four or five, six times that of the state. Uh, those conditions have not improved in the, you know, number of years I've been involved, 10, 20 years or so, those conditions have been uh, are relatively stable. Uh, our air population or our air pollution tends to be a consequence of uh, uh, where we sit, we're a, sort of a depressed valley, and so bad air from other places comes and settles in our community. Uh, but we import an awful lot of it in terms of what happens in terms of uh, pollution along uh, the roadway and other um, uh, thoroughfares um, in the uh, I-99 corridor in particular. 
So the circle that you see there is a circle around uh, the Memorial um, and Brightwood neighborhoods uh, in the north end of Springfield. The population there is roughly 85%, um, um, 90% uh, Latina, Latinx, primarily Puerto Rican population. And as you heard the story about the Herrera School, well, the Herrera School sits uh, right along I-91. And I-91, by the way, bisects, cuts in half uh, those two neighborhoods, Memorial and Brightwood. So all the traffic up and down I-91, um, both in terms of noise pollution and air pollution, uh, uh, assaults uh, residents in those communities. It just so happens that I-91 actually passes over top of Herrera Middle School. And so not only is the uh, tunnel that connects the two communities um, uh, a place of mode and bad air, uh, uh, the fact that the, uh, the school is situated below the water table next to the river and um, uh, partially um, trans transversed by, by I-91 makes it a, a, a specifically and uh, a stringently bad place for children and, um, and for the whole surrounding community. Um, now, very simple solution, um, uh, move the school. Uh, we move schools all the time, um, requires public will and perhaps uh, with neighbor to neighbor working with Springfield residents, um, we might um, move the um, school department to move the school or move the highway. And, and in fact, I think it, the solution requires that we move both uh, Route 91 and, and the school. Um, so these maps are uh, of these environmental justice maps, the environmental justice communities are um, uh, uh, particularly um, uh, uh, important in, in my uh, presentation because the way I define the lines that define uh, the Springfield neighborhoods, the lines that uh, demarcate our community from hyper-segregated uh, communities of color to hyper-segregated white communities and by hyper-segregated white those are those communities without the hash marks where the population is less than uh, five percent uh, people of color and that the differences between those two communities are stark differences so when you think of the uh, hash mark or the colored people's community so to speak using that uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, comment uh, the communities uh, experience extreme uh, limited opportunities. There are differences uh, in health, differences in education, differences in uh, well-being. Uh, the life expectancy of people in, in EJ neighborhoods is substantially significantly different than the life expectancy from people that live in surrounding communities and surrounding neighborhoods as much as uh, 10 years in some, some instances. Uh, that is a consequence of uh, decades of uh, systematic and historic disinvestment, lack of investment in those places. Uh, so those lines that you see are lines that are, are uh, clearly demarked and clearly delineate uh, issues of uh, uh, racism and uh, um, and uh, in, in a very pointed way, uh, using my hyper-segregation uh, labels, uh, lines of uh, re residential segregation in, 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 in general 
um, uh, lines of uh, structural and environmental racism. So if I, uh, uh, about five years ago, we, uh, or longer, we uh, had an EPA grant, we did an assessment of the overall uh, environmental risk and hazards in our communities. And we found that in those same environmental neighborhoods, environmental justice neighborhoods, you're more likely to find, uh, as I mentioned earlier, brownfields, you're more likely to find uh, 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 chop shops, or I should say, um, uh, um, automobile or repair facilities, uh, uh, body uh, shops where uh, the pollutants uh, uh, and the um, hazards are substantially uh, magnified for people that live in those surrounding neighborhoods. Uh, in contrast, if you uh, left those areas to, again, the other neighborhoods, you would find none of that. So uh, it's by design, by uh, structure, by, uh, by uh, government um, permission that these neighborhoods are uh, struggling in the ways that they do uh, with issues of asthma. Um, so again, um, cycle th back through the North End, and again, we have um, uh, uh, a, a classic example that could be replicated in other neighborhoods in Springfield. Um, so I wanted to use that map of Springfield's environmental hazard neighborhoods to actually uh, talk about environmental hazards, environmental uh, issues or environmental justice issues as it looks at the issue of COVID. So if you note the maps previously and this map, that there are some things that really are in common um, and that the high risk areas, those red areas and yellow areas are coincidental and coincide exactly with the same uh, EJ neighborhoods that you saw on the previous map. Uh, places of um, uh, high population density, uh, places of linguistically isolated populations. If you note again, up this corner here, Memorial Square, Brightwood, you got Route 91 running through that neighborhood. And this is a neighborhood uh, where you have substantial air pollution, noise pollution, um, uh, and um, um, poor um, health status, particularly with, re with respect to asthma and other respiratory conditions. So, we uh, understood um, the environmental justice issues challenging Springfield, as well as the hard lines drawn by hypersegregation and the consequence of living in a limit, limited opportunity community. Uh, and we said, well, we expect that COVID is going to have a similar or a same experience. And so uh, we decided to uh, try to plan ahead. Uh, to take a do an analysis of this community by uh, coming up with a model that uh, combined those risk factors uh, and uh, added to those risk factors these blue dots if you can see them and those are basically uh, places of low-income housing um, uh, so that was our um, learning if you will our current experience with uh, environmental justice matters with uh, house of spirities as related to asthma uh, COPD, uh, diabetes, chronic disease, premature mortality. When we stacked all those together in our environmental justice community, it just made sense that we 
uh, should expect and could expect that the uh, our experience with COVID-19 was going to be as dramatic. Um, and let's plan ahead. Let's get ahead of it and see if we might actually uh, uh, make a difference. Um, well, uh, we've done some sampling. Um, um, and so one of the challenges in this planning ahead in, in the sampling is we don't have all the data. Uh, and so we're actually geocoding the data to come up with what we were calling small area analysis to, uh, that allows us to take a look at the data at census block groups so that we can in fact um, um, uh, predict where cases are gonna show up and in predicting where those cases are gonna show up, intervene early. Or we can determine the pattern of the uh, current COVID um, uh, infection or infection rates. And as uh, prophylactics or as treatments come up and as vaccinations show up, and, and there's an equity formula that's, that assumes that those at highest risk would be prioritized for vaccinations, that we'd have a way of actually modeling that kind of um, uh, uh, situation to folks. Uh, but again, we're missing two thirds of the data. But even with that amount of the data missing, we have a sense of what the perspective is on um, uh, our community. Our theory is that our high risk uh, communities, those black uh, indigenous people of color that are residing in culturally and linguistically diverse neighborhoods are more likely to have um, uh, COVID than those that, that don't. Uh, and so when you look at the green versus the red and or the other shadings, those green neighborhoods are typically um, uh, uh, white communities. Those that are uh, uh, shaded with the greater number of cases are uh, black um, uh, indigenous people of color uh, living in culturally and, and uh, linguistically diverse neighborhoods. So uh, that's the model that we're developing that says that um, uh, uh, an understanding of small area areas, small locations of high risk in our community uh, may in fact be a tool for guiding uh, interventions that uh, mitigate and prevent uh, 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 COVID spread. And quite frankly, uh, it's actually a tool that uh, fits exactly the challenges facing us as we look at environmental justice issues. Uh, so when we think about environmental justice, neighborhood structural and environmental racism, uh, it's not Springfield, it's subsets of Springfield, it's specific localities of Springfield, it's uh, uh, groups of people in Springfield uh, that uh, if we use the data to, to drive the allocation of resources, to drive solutions that we actually might um, make a difference in uh, achieving uh, equity for all. Uh, so I want to stop there. Um, there's much more I can talk about, but I wanted to uh, provide context for, uh, uh, for additional comments and, and remarks. All right, thank you so much. Uh, Dave, I think you're up next. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, so I think what we um, 
I've heard from all of these wonderful presentations um, is that environmental justice is, you know, really one of the perfect illustrative cases for, you know, what intersectionality um, is. Um, and Maria Bellani and Frank's um, presentations and Andrea's, and I, I really wanted to call back to Andrea's comment that we don't lead single issue lives, right? That all of these, um, you know, identities and factors are combined. So in an academic um, looks at um, environmental despoliation, some of these factors can, can become viewed as, um, as, as confounding factors, but really it's all part of this whole, which I think, you know, all, all the um, words from the community advocates and Frank's research in Springfield really illustrates beautifully. Um, in the Attorney General's office, we, um, there we go, um, we were thinking about this issue in the context of COVID-19. Um, so in particular, what, um, you know, we in the Energy and Environment Bureau always are thinking about environmental justice, are working on um, helping the most vulnerable communities, are working on doing enforcement in the most vulnerable communities. Um, but with COVID-19, because of that background, we wondered if there were inequities out there. And a study that sort of um, piqued our particular interest in respiratory health and pollution in COVID-19 um, was Francesca Dominici's study out of the Harvard School of Public Health, which came out in early March of this year. Um, that study looked at 3,000 counties in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and, um, sorry, 3,000 counties in the United States. Um, and, and, and what it um, what it showed was um, that only a very small increase in PM two and a half or fine particulate matter pollution, um, one part per billion, um, was correlated with a thirteen percent increase at that time of COVID nineteen deaths in those counties. And so what we said was, how can we relate this back to Massachusetts? Obviously, counties in Massachusetts we have fourteen of them. They're huge. They're in, they're incredibly diverse. You know, even within our cities and towns, as you know, Frank pointed out. But Springfield, there are inequities. But still, the county was too big of a thing. So we started reaching out to to scientists, to community organizers, um, medical professionals, public health professionals throughout the Commonwealth to see where the data was, what data we even had, and how we could approach quantifying this issue. Um, and unfortunately, at the time, the State Department of Public Health was only releasing data about COVID-19 in Massachusetts um, at the county level. And so there really wasn't much that we could use with um, researchers who told us that we wanted at least city and town, but probably better as census blockers if code measure, as you know, as Frank said, it can be a neighborhood to neighborhood or block to block thing. Um, and they wanted it to be, um, to have started early enough um, and to be at a quick enough interval so that you could really mark this change over time in COVID infections and morbidity, mortality, meaning the severity of the infection and potential deaths um, over time in particular communities and compare those to known environmental justice vulnerabilities, meaning public health factors that we know um, are correlated with disparate impacts to people's, um, to the public's health based on um, you know, related to the environment, I should say. Um, and so we, what we were finally able to do was this workaround where we found that the Massachusetts major city chiefs of police, which represents 38 police chiefs in the largest 
communities in Massachusetts um, had been collecting daily data of COVID infections, deaths, and recoveries um, since early March. Um, and we were able to um, get that data to a com um, community researchers at the Boston University School of Public Health um, in their environmental science department, um, who began to work with that data and, and map how COVID was affecting these 38 cities and towns. Um, and by mapping that data against known data about those cities and towns, but you know, demographic, but also across these other vulnerability factors. Um, these vulnerabilities both had to do with sort of what we already knew about environmental justice and respiratory health, but also things that were particular to COVID. So to give a couple of examples, um, the heat index for these places, the, um, the levels of particulate matter pollution that they have, but um, the um, per demographics of the places, the, the, the um, income, uh, incomes of the places, whether what the percentage of essential workers is, um, people living in more or less dense housing. So all, all of these factors, and they, and they mapped it out. Um, and there were about 20 um, COVID vulnerabilities that they identified and, and analyzed against the data about what COVID-19 was doing in these 30 months eight urban communities, which I should note excluded a couple of, um, a few communities where we were noticing inequities, but just weren't part of this major city police chiefs organization. So notably Randolph and Braintree um, were not included in this, in this data set, but it was enough at the time with the limited data to, to get a start and maybe start to direct resources in a more efficient way and or raise awareness of the, um, of the issues of inequity um, with related to COVID. Um, and what they found was that that race and ethnicity. Um, so in other words, the percentage of a town that was um, that was black or Latinx um, was the most correlated factor with the infection rate of COVID, and that proved true over um, three months of analysis. So from from the um, from mid March to mid June. Um, in other words, the other vulnerabilities. Um, were correlated with increased COVID infection rates. Um, but the thing that tied it all together was race and, race and ethnicity. So you could see this environmental justice issue that we've spoken about already today um, as a thread through what was happening with, with COVID on the ground. Um, I'm gonna share my screen again, briefly to show you a little bit about um, what we found. This is what the data looked like. Um, June 15th, which is the last um, real analysis that we had before the state started coming out with better, more localized data and sharing that with the BU team. Um, what you can see here is obviously very high rates in, in Chelsea that were really peaking badly um, in April and May. Um, Lawrence Brockton over Revere. This gives you a sense though um, of how the communities with higher percentage of, of percentages of Black and Latinx residents were absolutely the communities that were more impacted by COVID in Massachusetts. Um, so taking this information, um, which because of our work in this area was distressing, but not surprising, we said, how can we put this to work to try to make some change, both in the near term, in terms of how we're directing resources to respond to COVID-19, but also in the medium and long term, and how we can um, create change that helps communities maybe use this problem to amplify the environmental justice issues that we have known about for um, so long. So we put together a report um, on COVID-19 and environmental justice 
incorporating and really driven by the conversations we had with community leaders, with medical professionals, um, and with the scientists, and with a lot of the other research that's out there, um, and um, have used that as a jumping off point to be able to discuss this issue with decision makers um, across the Commonwealth and also with the community so that people are aware of, of, what's, um, of what's affecting them and how they might be able to advocate for themselves. Um, the, um, I, I wanna share a little bit of the research that we collected that I thought was particularly um, trenchant in this regard. So there's a great study out of um, um, the, um, the BU School of Public Health. This is by a graduate student named Matthew Reisman. Um, and he looked at the, um, there, there's a thing in Boston called the Carbon Free Boston Initiative. Um, and, and he said, okay, what if we analyze that statistically? And what if we actually run the numbers and see what would happen in Suffolk County, if you removed all of the anthropogenic or human generated emissions. Um, and what he found was that there would be a tremendous amount of, of deaths avoided per year. I think this reflects about 250 um, or 275 deaths per year, that there would be a savings of um, more than $2 billion across the greater Boston area. I think um, 1.7, billion dollars um, in the city of Boston itself. Um, and, um, and, and that this reflects the um, decrease in morbidity, meaning the severity of respiratory illness overall and mortality, meaning unnecessary deaths that you would get if you removed all of these anthropogenic emissions. But moreover, and again, by this point in the talk, this should not surprise you, these benefits would be disproportionately conferred upon Black and Latinx people. Um, another study that, you know, leads me to what are our policy recommendations and what we can do about it that I wanted to share with this group is a recent working paper that came out of American University. They looked at um, pollution levels, PM two and a half, so this fine particulate matter um, by county in the United States during the course of the past four months of the COVID pandemic. Um, and in particular, they looked at that from the major EPA rollback on, on PM2.5 emissions inspections and controls. Um, and what they found was that in communities that already were overly burdened with these sites um, that already had more, you can see there's one for six or more, one for one to five um, of, of these big generators of pollution, that those communities had a, um, a statistically significant more than you would expect naturally increase in pollution um, during the pandemic subsequent to the EPA rollback. So, you know, what all this shows you is that up and down the ladder of abstraction, right, from a middle school in Springfield to federal regulations, the policies that we put into action are mattering for, for people on the ground. Um, here's one that looks at deaths of COVID-19 and appears to demonstrate, although it's very new work, that, um, that daily deaths in those communities with more polluting sites were um, disproportionate to the size and other demographics of those communities during the pandemic subsequent to the EPA rollbacks going into effect. Um, okay, so what can we do? We came up with some recommendations um, at the end of our report. Um, we can invest in clean energy and clean jobs. This can help us to 
recover the economy. This can help us to hopefully benefit the communities that are most affected, both in terms of, of work and reinvesting in those communities, um, you know, but also to create the kinds of changes in, in electrification of home heating and transportation and other things that will um, alleviate, oh, well, but that will help to alleviate some of these um, unfair burdens. Um, we can halt the rollbacks. Um, the Trump administration um, failed to strengthen the national ambient air quality standards for PM two and a half. Um, they reversed a prior finding regulating power plant mercury pollution. Um, they, you know, outside of respiratory health, they recently approved um, the construction of a giant gold mine in Alaska that most scientists and fisheries people say will decimate the sockeye salmon fishery there. Um, so we can fight that. We can fight for better air quality standards nationally and locally. And we can also step up enforcement of environmental laws to safeguard the public and the most vulnerable communities. But as I think we heard, um, you know, so helpfully um, in Maria Belaine's presentation, um, enforcement can only go so far because enforcement looks at where somebody went beyond what they were allowed to do, but there is too much permitted despoliation of the environment um, having to do with citing decisions that are legal um, and sanctioned by the state and federal governments. Um, so moving forward, we need to work with these environmental justice communities, center the experiences of the, the people who live there, involve them in improving um, the quality of citing and the quality of data. Data is power. And I think it's illustrated so beautifully by um, what we found when we first started looking into looking at COVID by race and ethnicity and other, um, and other equity factors. And we couldn't find the data. Um, what data you collect is a political issue, it's a moral issue, and it drives policy. Um, so the House bill, um, 4264, you know, collects some of the data. Um, the cumulative impact data that we need to better help people. But there is other public health data that we can improve the quality of to ensure that both communities um, understand the risks and their needs and they can advocate, um, and also that the legislature and the government understands where to direct resources. Um, we can establish a more robust network of air quality monitoring sites. There is no state or federal air quality monitoring in, in Chelsea, for example. Um, and we can establish stronger criteria for permitting decisions, which leads me to um, what I think is the flagship recommendation of our report, um, which is Green Gideon. What we would like to see is that the, these bodies, these state regulatory bodies that are overseeing facility siting um, have to require early community engagement in their siting procedures, um, that they are legally required to consider environmental justice in their siting decisions, that they're legally required to document that consideration, and that those environmental justice determinations are judicially reviewable. Why should they be judicially reviewable? So that communities can actually then in, inject themselves into the process and advocate for themselves. So in energy facility, environmental permitting, and similar proceedings, what we'd like to do is to require the applicants for these sites, in other words, the people who want to put up a, um, a transfer station or what have you to fund experts and attorneys for community interveners so that community 
um, communities who are going to be affected by environmental harms um, have counsel and can and can advocate for a full airing of their concerns at the siting stage of the project development before that thing even gets approved. Um, so now I'd like to turn our discussion um, to the group and speak a little bit more um, with all of you about, um, about not only the Attorney General's policy recommendations, um, but, but, but really ideas that all of you may have um, in terms of environmental justice going forward in Massachusetts, how to create really a systemic change in the way that environmental justice is, is treated in, in state and federal law, and, and maybe what people on the call um, can do to continue to educate themselves about environmental justice. Um, so, Andrea, why don't we start with you, if you could just speak a little bit about um, Neighbor to Neighbors um, thoughts on, on policy going forward in the next um, six months to a year. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, um, as many of mentioned before, we have been co-convening with Green Roots, the Massachusetts Environmental Justice Legislative Table. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> um, and so we have been meeting with um, civil rights lawyers, um, lawyers from Conservation Law Foundation, uh, big enviro groups and grassroots groups um, around pushing environmental justice legislation this session. So we have been strongly advocating for House Bill 4264, um, which has still it's been sitting in ways and means since December of 2019. Um, and you know, if there was ever a time to pass EJ protections, we also know that this piece of legislation just sets the baseline. It's like the basement of the house um, and we need to build the rest of the house up. And so if there was ever a time to really just set that foundation with everything that's happening with COVID-19, um, with still continuous siting proposals in already overburdening communities, um, with the racial justice uprising that have been happening, um, this is definitely the time to acknowledge historical um, environmental harms and public health harms that have like exacerbated over over the years and centuries, um, but then also to really invest in in these same communities um, and really have uh, residents lead decision making processes that will um, impact their cities and their towns. And so we've been strongly advocating for House Bill 4264 as that like first step um, in, in identifying environmental justice populations, in setting that criteria, um, and then putting in measures so that the, the applicants of these siting facilities really do their due diligence to make sure that they're translating materials, because they don't always do that, make sure that there's translation um, at the siting board facilities, and, and just really in, um, bringing in that community decision-making process. Andrew, you mentioned in your presentation the um, term a just transition. Can you just explain to us briefly what that means? Yeah, sure. So um, just transition means that as, as we're transitioning off of fossil fuels into this renewable economy, um, that we're doing it justly, meaning there are workers who are in fossil fuel industry that also need to be transitioned. We can't just shut something down and then have mass unemployment either. Um, so it really just means how are we transitioning workers into the green economy? How are we making sure that communities, especially environmental justice communities that are um, usually the black, brown, indigenous, people of color communities 
have access to the green economy um, to ensure that we are we're really thinking holistically as we're transitioning um, how it's impacting workers, how it's impacting BIPOC communities, how it's impacting working class communities, immigrant communities, et cetera. Um, and Frank, could you speak a little bit about, I, I just loved hearing um, about um, your work in Springfield, but I know we've spoken in the past a little bit about indoor air quality and how that can be an environmental justice issue as well. And it so often gets overlooked. Can you just tell us a little bit about, um, in, in your view, um, some policies that could help with the indoor air quality front? Well, uh, I'll cite um, projects. So uh, a, point, a point of correction. So I, I'm formerly the executive director of Partners for Healthy Community. The current organization is doing business as the Public Health Institute of Western Mass. The executive director is uh, Jessica Collins. So um, in my old, with that old hat on, um, we uh, ran the Pine Valley Asthma uh, coalition uh, worked very closely with Springfield Public Schools and their uh, nurse division, and with um, the um, uh, Parks Commission, who managed all of the facilities. And they were able to install our institute uh, a whole range of green policies around uh, green cleaning, uh, 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 air uh, uh, quality improvements for each of the 26 schools um, to address uh, asthma in particular, respiratory diseases in general. Um, and so uh, that really transformed how uh, school buildings and how the environment of the school system itself uh, was, was uh, managed uh, by uh, uh, the school department as well as by the other city, uh, city agencies responsible for uh, improving that, uh, the health and well-being of students. Um, so it's really ordinary uh, um, actions. However, uh, big actions because it meant changing the mindset of um, principals, of administrators, and changing uh, what uh, was purchased. Uh, and so there's some really nuts and bolts kinds of actions necessary to actually advance uh, healthy indoor air quality um, or, or, or healthy indoor environment. Uh, in general for students in particular uh, uh, as it relates to schools. So that's an example of success of doing that kind of intervention. Um, it doesn't necessarily solve the, the Harena school problem because that problem is much larger than uh, cleaning supplies and air quality inside the school. It's really around how the school is sited and the uh, uh, other large environmental uh, challenges. There was a, a question and answer that I thought I, I said I would re respond to live. And the uh, questioner said, well, if everybody knows this, why are we continuing to put stuff in these communities? Well, it's all about power. Uh, and I would defer to Maria and, and Andrea who are doing the organizing at a, at a grassroots level that's trying to change the power imbalance. And so it's not by accident. It's not that folks don't know the data. They figure they can get away with it because those communities are less powerful than others. Uh, so you have bad decisions made that will impact uh, uh, those communities, not because people are ignorant, but because they don't know. And let me close with my one example in terms of how uh, the general public gets excluded from decisions. So I, when I was at Partners for Healthcare Community, we did a health impact assessment to determine the impact of, of the uh, MGM casino on the 
health and well-being of populations. And so some of the data that we pulled out of that having to do with transportation and surface transportation had to do with asthma, had to do with COPD. Um, but the big issue was how the process itself, uh, supported by government, uh, was designed to exclude uh, voices. And so uh, if you've ever done a health impact assessment, you're trying to uh, allow the community to have direct input uh, um, in the scoping process of what the issues are. Well, we couldn't do that because they kept shortcutting the community input process in order to get a decision um, early. The longer the decision was laid, the more organized and the more vocal the community would become. So by design, by design, the siting of MGN was set up to exclude participation. Um, and so uh, I suspect that would apply to the uh, power plant uh, in Chelsea or, or whatever the other sites are that have been uh, put forward. There's uh, a design to mitigate uh, true, authentic, uh, small D or even big D uh, participation. Exactly. I mean, I think small D democracy is, is so important. Participatory democracy is so important. And that's one idea behind our our Green Gideon plan that we came up with at the AGO is to really empower communities to intervene in the process in not only a meaningful way where they get to speak, but in an empowered way where, where that can actually decide how the process goes. Um, Maria Belena, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on how, um, how legislators and others who are part of the legislative process can ensure that, um, that community voices are, are part of the um, legislative process going forward. And conversely, how can community groups um, and, and others who are interested capitalize on the sort of mainstream moment that EJ is having now and, and carry that momentum forward to create some real change? Sure, sure. So um, I'll, I'll just um, echo what Dr. Frank Robinson was saying about participation and, um, and the democratic process. I have to say um, the substation process in East Boston has been nothing but uh, excluding communities and, uh, and designed in a way so that residents don't even know what's happening. Um, the process, uh, the hearing when it was tentatively approved happened in the middle of the day. We requested interpretation ahead of time Interpretation was provided, but only for the board to understand Spanish if there were residents speaking Spanish. So we mobilized residents in that neighborhood to learn about this infrastructure. People took time out of their day, time out of their work, figured out childcare. We got there and the EFSB said it would be too disruptive to interpret. And so we had over 40 residents who live in that neighborhood who sat there for four hours, not understanding a single word. So when you talk about participation, democracy, language access, this is precisely uh, the example of what happens and how it is designed in a way uh, to get processes, to get permits through uh, without the participation of the frontline uh, residents and those that will be most impacted. Um, so this, and this is precisely what part of the legislation would do. It would require language access. It would require 
uh, outreach in the communities and it would require any permitting process to include those uh, aspects of participation. And so, I mean, honestly, the substation might as well, might, might have been still approved, but it would have been different if folks were involved. The process from the very beginning was flawed. And so the, our demand and our request is that it cannot move forward simply because of the process that was flawed. I mean, we still believe it's a dangerous infrastructure. It's located on a parcel of land that has flooded before next to jet fuel, 8 million gallons of jet fuel next to a playground. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous proposal. But if there was anything that actually uh, advocates and environmental advocates have latched onto, it's the process that residents didn't even understand what was happening. Um, and there, the, there was a hearing in the neighborhood, one hearing in the neighborhood after it had been tentatively approved. So no community participation, no interpretation, no meeting in the neighborhood until after it was tentatively approved. And, and just one last piece about this process is that on March 11th, there was a scheduled hearing to do the final approval. That day, I think it was that morning that the governor said no public meetings because of COVID. Well, the EFSB and Eversource were still going to go through with this meeting. And of course, we raised a lot of, we, we sounded the alarm to use a good word um, and said, this is absolutely ridiculous. You're asking residents to either participate in a process of a dangerous infrastructure in their neighborhood or for their health because of COVID. So you either get infected and participate or you don't get infected and you don't participate. So, I mean, I'm putting it simply in that way, but, but that's not the crux of it, of you either want people involved or you don't. And clearly the system is set up for communities of color for communities who don't speak English and for low-income communities to be excluded. And that's part of what the legislation would do. It would require additional outreach. It would require language interpretation and it would require more significant involvement from the community. Right, I mean, I think democracy in action doesn't work if there's not actual, um, if, if there's not actual, you know, some quotient of equity between the different democratic participants. If you, you know, just say that each person has a vote and can technically speak, that's fine. But if there's such a power disparity, you know, I mean, that's why language access is so important. That's why, um, you know, um, closed captioning is so important. People need to be able to, to participate, but also um, where there is such, uh, uh, I mean, and, and the language thing relates to providing counsel and experts to people because um, there needs to be an, an equality of, of information among the various parties so that people are able to understand what they're going to advocate for. And then I think I would also say that um, where there is such a power inequity, a power imbalance, um, that's a place where the law can step in and you know, create a more just and more democratic process by um, giving actual power to these communities, by creating a process where there is something, you know, whether it's in the form of what we've proposed with with judicial review or not, um, but by actually empowering those communities, um, you know, and and really all people within within the law. Um, I have a 
question from the audience that I'd like to address to the panel that I think is so important. Um, the question is what areas of environmental enforcement are not getting enough attention and aren't adequately addressed by Commonwealth agencies? How can those agencies increase their awareness and responsiveness to those environmental violations? And I'd love to hear a little bit from, from each of you if you have thoughts. Um, and I would just say briefly, um, I know we've talked a lot about citing in this discussion. Um, you know, what we see in our enforcement practice is, you know, not confined for those in the audience who may not be as familiar to the large um, projects like a power transfer station or like a Mount Tom coal plant or like a Somerset coal plant um, or like the New Bedford Harbor Superfund site. Um, but, you know, often has to do with, um, you know, um, low tech, light, medium, or even heavy industry um, being able to run roughshod over, over or, or housing developers, what, what have you, being able to run roughshod over communities who may not have the power, the voice, the, the time, the, the willpower to be able to, um, to intervene. So our asbestos program is something that's been really successful in the Attorney General's office, um, where, for example, you know, it's a ton of work that's gone into um, enforcing um, cases where it could be a large institution that was knocked down and toxins were all over the place. So it could be a small um, housing unit, but either way it's protecting those residents and, and, um, and those workers. I'm sure there are other issue areas that are important. So again, the question is what areas of environmental enforcement aren't getting enough attention or address by Commonwealth agencies? And how can we as the Commonwealth increase our awareness and responsiveness to those environmental violations that may be overlooked? Uh, I'll just chime in quickly to say that, and I'll just mention one, and I'm sure um, Andrea and Dr. Robinson have, um, have things to add as well, but I would say uh, there is a lack of cumulative impact analysis. Uh, in Chelsea, we look at the, the emissions and we look at the discharge permits on the Chelsea Creek. We look at projects and we look at them in, in silos. And so in and of itself, the discharge permits and what's being le leaked into the creek may not sound like a big deal uh, if it's looked uh, alone, but when you look at the whole picture, when you look at the cumulative impact and the burdens that our communities carry over and over and over and over, there isn't an analysis of that cumulative, um, of the cumulative impact. And, and just to, to say finally on, on COVID and the legislation, I'll just echo what Andrea said. If there isn't ever a time for Massachusetts to enact environmental justice legislation, it's now. And honestly, I truly feel that if it doesn't happen now under this context, I don't think it ever will. Wow, Frank, do you have anything to add? I would. I know that I'm not sure how pervasive it is within state government, but this notion of completing and conducting health impact assessments in advance of projects that would then provide guidance to the various state agencies. So uh, I would uh, suggest, it doesn't answer the question directly, but in a similar to Maria's response, to the fact that there has to be a, a, a explicit health impact assessment as part of the process to site or to operate uh, new programs, uh, I think uh, really speaks uh, speak to the whole issue of enforcement. Um, again, uh, our health impact assessment for NGM provided 
sort of a template or roadmap, if you will, on four or five critical issues that would have gone unnoticed had we not done the impact assessment itself. So um, building that kind of forethought into the process. And then I, I just would simply say it's, it, uh, it's the, the data drives, drives it all. And, uh, and my appeal would be that we are able to use small area data um, to uh, advance decisions. So in Springfield, if you were to look at our community 10, 15 years ago for infant mortality, we were, you know, a little bit above the average. But when you looked at it in a small area by defined populations, Black women, Latinx, uh, Latina women were four or five, six times that of the general population. So the quality of the data uh, will drive enforcement and, and, and subsequent policy. So I think it's a data issue in some respects. Right, and so that data, like as we've said this whole time, right, if you have the right information, you can do something with it. I mean, data can drive inspections on the part of an agency like DEP, it can drive investigations on the part, the part of the Attorney General's office, and we can target stuff to places um, that are most in need and maybe find needs that we didn't know existed before. And I qualify that the right data, you know. Is Correct, yeah. Um, Andrea, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with what Dr. Robinson and Maria Belen said. The, the other thing that I would just add is, um, you know, to look back at some of the infrastructure that we have now, um, let's not forget Mount Tom coal plant racked up 2,500 Federal Clean Air Act violations and it was still in operation. Um, so there are like a myriad of projects or facilities that are here still in Massachusetts that we haven't looked back and asked, you know, hey, what are the, what's the impact that's in this community? What are what are the violations that they may have racked up that we have swept under the rug? Um, so really, just I agree with the data, the cumulative impacts, and that there are existing facilities that are in overburdened communities, and and yeah, just taking a closer look at at what has already been cited. Thanks so much. All right. Well, I think we've gone to 123. I think this is a great place to wrap up. I want to thank the panelists so much. This is, um, frankly, I've been doing conversations like this um, all spring and summer um, since the pandemic hit. This is one of the best ones I've been a part of. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to you know, be working with all of you on this and, and going forward in our work. Um, and I would just throw it, the floor back to Lou to, um, to wrap up the panel. Thanks a lot, everyone. This has been really great. Uh, I know it went a little longer than we planned, but I think it was worth it because the quality of the conversation was so good. Um, so I hope everyone got a lot out of this. I sure did. Um, and um, thank you, everybody, for being a part of it. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Good job. Thank you.